If you're in the battle for the Lord and right, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight. Keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must face. If we die of fighting, it is no disgrace. Coward in the service, he will find a place. So keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. When we get to heaven, brother, we'll be glad. Keep on the firing line. How we'll praise the Savior for the call we had. Keep on the firing line. When we see the souls that we have helped to win, leading them to Jesus from the paths of sin, with the shout of welcome we will all march in. So keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. You must fight, be brave against all evil. Never run nor even lag behind. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. If you would win for God and the right, just keep on the firing line. The firing line. You broke the mic. You got so low that the mic gave out. <laughs> wow. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2. We'll rush right on through the introduction. Uh, obviously, we've been in our series here and uh, uh, just uh, dealing with the mysteries, mysteries. So we move on to mystery number four. And so let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, which just lays the groundwork and expresses the need to be a good steward of the mysteries of God. The Bible says over there in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Okay, so we started discussing and talking about the fact that uh, there's a stewardship here, and it's concerning the mysteries, if you will, of God. We began to look at those mysteries, and the first mystery we addressed and talked about was the virgin birth, God manifest in the flesh. We talked about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then we talked about, uh, finally, the third one, the Lord Jesus Christ and His bride were one flesh, and we noted the mystery of all of that. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to the book of Romans tonight, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 25, 26, and then we'll touch on 28 and 29, and we'll move along here quickly this evening. But Romans chapter 11 Notice verse 25 and 26 to start with. 
Romans chapter 11. Once you get to Romans chapter 11, we're going to go ahead and have a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to pray whether you find it or not here in a moment. Okay, because obviously we were doing a, having a real tough time with those memory verses with the exception of about two, three people. Okay, so I hope you know where the books of the Bible are better than we know the Bible. Because <laughs> we were struggling, weren't we? <laughs> All right, well, good times. How many of you are doing the 52 Club now? Or how many, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask how many have gotten out of it. I'm asking how many are still in it. <laughs> okay. All right, let's see your hands. Look at this. Come on, some more. Come on. We got any more here? Yeah, that's still good. That's pretty good. I know there's a few others that aren't here that are in our nurseries and others that are doing it as well. I don't know about you, but I'm starting to sweat bullets. Uh, we're getting close to the end. And man, some of them verses, as I start running through all of them, I can't remember them all quite where they belong and uh, the, putting the verses with the addresses and all of that. So uh, keep working at it. It's not easy, but it's a worthwhile venture. So strive to uh, learn those verses, all right? Stay at it. Don't quit now. You're too close to the finish line. All right, so anyway, let's look at Romans chapter 11. And now that we're there, let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. We are a needy people. We desperately need you. I pray, Father, that you'd fill me with your spirit and allow, Father, uh, the people of God, may their ears be anointed as well, that they may hear with spiritual ears. Father, uh, we live in an upside-down world, and we desperately need you to give us leadership and guidance. And so, Lord, we turn to your word, and we ask you, Father, to teach us tonight to reveal to us a mystery, a truth. And, Father, as we apply it to our lives, may we be better for it. We love you now. We desperately need you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, we begin reading there, and the Bible says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, right off the bat, we note here a mystery. You see that? It's a mystery. So what's he going to address now? He's going to move forward. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, till the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now he goes on to say in verse 28, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now that's interesting what we just read there, isn't it? We're reading there that an unbelieving Jew is the enemy of the gospel. That, that's an interesting statement. He's an enemy of the gospel. Again, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies, the Bible says. But as touching the election, the fact that God chose them, they're beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So when we consider this mystery, what is the mystery? The mystery is that God is not through with Israel. That's the mystery. And you say, why is that such a big mystery? Now again, it's a big mystery because from all appearance, at least from the world's sake, God should be done with them or God is done with them. But that's not the case at all. Matter of fact, someday God is going to take the wandering Jew, bring them back to Palestine, which he's already done, and continues to add to that. And he's going to place them in the tribulation period. And there, God is going to do a work in their nation. He's going to, unfortunately, put them through the ringer, if you will. But then, he's going to convert them. And 
that's the mystery of the believing remnant of Israel. The fact that God's not done and that they're going to turn back to God even. That's amazing, really. The passage before it says, As concerning the gospel, they're enemies, but as touching the election, they're beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Again, emphasizing the fact that this is a promise. A calling that God's not going to go back on. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his direction. When you consider how rebellious and how disobedient Israel had been toward God, it is a mystery that he's not finished with them. In Matthew chapter 21, we see summarized there the rebellion of this nation. It's, it's summarized in a parable. Turn to Matthew 21, verse 33. Again, you think about Israel and you ask yourself, why in the world would God want anything to do with Israel after the way Israel treated him and his son? I don't know about you, but that's kind of a mystery to me. You know, when people treat us a certain way, we get a little bent out of shape and we get upset about it. And then we end up doing things like unchristian things like saying, I'll never forgive you. But it's an amazing thing that God will ultimately forgive Israel. And notice what it says in Matthew 21, verse 33 through 40. Again, it summarizes their rebellion in a parable form. It says, hear another parable, verse 33. Matthew 21, 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and lent it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto the husbandmen? Now again, we see here a picture of what's transpired and taken place through history. We see how Israel rejected the prophets and how Israel ultimately rejected the Son of God Himself. That's what the parable's implying and that's what it's trying to teach us. But the question asked is, what will He do unto the husbandmen? When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what's He going to do unto the husbandmen, unto those that killed the prophets, if you will, unto those that killed the son and the heir? What's He going to do to them? Those responding said in verse 41, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out of His vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render Him the fruits of their season. We understand there what's going on here. We know that there's an element there where we know that the nation of Israel ultimately was put on a back burner, if you will, and made way for the church. We understand that and we get that. However, it's interesting to note here that that is not exactly how it's going to work out in the end, though. 
See, the answer here is quite obvious. I mean, it would seem very logical to me. He's going to miserably destroy the wicked men. Now, that's where I would say, absolutely. They deserve everything they're going to get. I mean, after killing his, his uh, uh, servants and then ultimately killing his son, the heir, my, oh, my, after doing all of that to me, the rightful, uh, the, 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 the owner of the property, the one that deserves the fruit of the property, the one that employed them to begin with, and they're going to treat my servants and my heir that way, my son? <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, they got coming what they got coming. And so I think the answer was logical. It makes perfect sense to us after all those attempts that the master made to diplomatically collect what was rightfully his. But this is not God's way. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 55. This is not God's way. We're talking about a mystery here. That God is not done with Israel. He's not finished with Israel yet. Why in the world wouldn't he be done with Israel after the way they treated him and his servants or his prophets and his son? Because he doesn't operate the way you and I do. I want you to notice something, what it says here in Isaiah 55, 7. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon well, how can that be? That's kind of amazing, really. You're talking about those very ones that rejected the servant, that rejected the son, those that uh, ultimately killed the prophets of Israel, killed the prophets, and ultimately hung Christ on Calvary and was part of that debacle? Oh, absolutely. He says here in the passage, right off the bat, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. How can that be? Verse 8 tells us, and verse 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, this is really the context of the passage. It isn't just that God's smarter than us. It isn't just that God understands the world and things going on better than us. That's not really the issue here in the passage. The fact is, is that God, in, in the context, is trying to make a point to say, listen, the way you would handle this is not the way I handle it. You don't see things the way I see things. You don't understand things the way I do. The fact is, is that God, myself, I, do things different. My ways and thoughts are toward mercy. Yours are toward judgment. Mine are toward mercy. And I'm quick to restore even the greatest of sinners. And he's going to restore Israel one day, despite the awful way they treated his prophets and his son. I don't know about you, but to me, I can't comprehend that. I can't wrap my mind around that. It's a mystery. You kill my son, I want you dead. You kill God's son, he says, eh, ask forgiveness and I'll express mercy and I'll pardon you completely. Matter of fact, I've already made a promise, so no matter what you do, I'm going to be good on my, make good on my promise. 
Now that's a mystery. I don't know about you. That doesn't fit in my world. I don't quite understand that in my finiteness and in my flesh. In Matthew 21, verse 43, again, we're still uh, in that same area there. He says, therefore say I unto you, thy kingdom, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And he goes on in verse 44 to say, <clears throat> and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall will grind into powder. Israel's going to pay an awful price for their rebellion and the rejection that they have, the, the rejection of Christ. However, they're going to be restored when they fall upon the stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they cry out for his mercy. They're going to be restored. Now, we're already seeing evidence that God is preparing Israel to enjoy his favor again. We're seeing that. I mean, the Jews already returned to Jerusalem and the land of promise, and more and more Jews are making their way back to the land. Everything in the word of God, the prophecies that have been expressed and given are being fulfilled before our very eyes. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm convinced that what we see taking place in our world today isn't random, nor is it by chance. It is a, 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 a diabolical and a demonic plan. The devil's at work, but what he doesn't understand is that God all along wants it. You know, we see evidence of things like the mark of the beast that actually could happen now, where before, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we thought, man, how's that going to happen? We know how it's going to happen, boy. It's obvious that it could happen. Matter of fact, we are already that close. It could happen tomorrow. Now, we understand you and I won't be here if indeed you know Christ is your Savior and the Antichrist won't be revealed to. We're already gone. I get all that. But the fact is, is that things are being set up in a way to where someone could come along and literally take their place on the throne of the world overnight, the way the media is today. The way we just get on our phones and our tablets and our computers and we're connected around the world If Ukraine would have happened 30 or 40 years ago, nobody would have cared about it at all. You wouldn't even know what was going on. Who cares what's going on in Ukraine? It doesn't affect us. That's what we'd have said. But boy, I'll tell you what, with these phones and these tablets and these computers, it's in your face all the time. Television, it, it's just there. You cannot separate yourself from the world today if you're connected electronically in some way. You are tied to the world all the time. We see how this can all go down now. And you know what? The devil thinks he's got it all figured out, but really he's just playing into God's hand. For centuries, the Jew has had a bullseye on their back. And yet they continue to exist and even thrive. I, I don't know how you explain that. This little insignificant nation, one of the smallest nations of all, and yet it ruled the world at one point. And yet it was virtually almost wiped out completely and ultimately scattered throughout the entire world 
following the burning down of Rome, 70 AD. It's amazing that they have continued to exist despite the attacks on the Jew throughout history. How are you and I to respond to them? See, the mystery of God, this mystery is that God's not through with Israel. So how should we respond to them? Well, again, the world hates the Jew. Oh, there's a few here and there that don't, but they're, they're pretty hated. They're pretty hated, and unfortunately, they're a lot more hated in our country than I'd like to admit. I was a little happy when our last former president was willing to say, listen, we're going to stand up for Israel. Listen, we're going to go ahead and let them have a little preeminence and prominence, and we're going to go ahead and just continue to remember what the Bible says about him. Hey, listen, I'm not saying he's a religious man, our last president, but what I do know is at least he honored the Jew. That's not what the, the world does usually, man. The world has completely and totally turned their back on the Jew. I think about Spain, for instance. At one point, Spain was the greatest nation on the face of the earth. When we think about Spain, you think about men like Cortez or Ponce de Leon. I, I speak a little bit of, you know. <laughs> I'd give you a little sample, but. Louis? No, that's France. I'm sorry. I, I get all my languages mixed up. I get them all mixed up. I was watching too much of Pepe Le Pew. But anyway, Ponce de Leon and Columbus and Vasco da Gama and Magellan. You've heard those names. They ruled the world. What happened to Spain? Well, let me give you just a real quick synopsis. About 1942, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, they instituted the Inquisition. 1492. I'm going to have a little inquisition here in a moment. <laughs> so about 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, they instituted the inquisition. Now, the Spanish inquisition began, and this is interesting, due to the Christian's fear of the growing population, the Jewish population. They were concerned that the Jews would become more powerful than even they were. I mean, this is how successful the Jew was becoming, and uh, they, it bothered them. And when I say Christians, I'm not talking about biblical Christians. I'm talking about Catholicism. And you go ahead, and we can debate that all day long, but the truth is, unless you come to Jesus Christ by faith, you're not saved, okay? There's no works involved in this. You don't, the good doesn't outweigh the bad, and Jesus came for a reason. He had to come, because without his sacrifice and his shed blood, uh, we could never get to heaven. There's not one thing we could do to earn our way there in any way, shape, or form. But unfortunately, the world was ruled by the Catholic Church for years and years and years. And Spain, of course, was controlled by the Catholic Church, even though they'd say it was their government. Their government was controlled by it. And so the Jews became such a threat to the monarchy that they saw the Inquisition as a way out, a source of maybe to fix one of their biggest problems. You say, so what did they do? Well, what they would do is they'd take those Jews and they would force them to be baptized. You have to be baptized. If you're not baptized, then we're going to confiscate your property. Maybe we'll run you out of town. We'll exile you. That's what we'll do. Hey, wait a second. We'll just steal your property. We'll even kill you. Maybe torture you. They murdered them. 
Then one day, the Spanish fleet went up to the English Channel. They met a fellow by the name of Sir Francis Drake, who sank the fleet with God's help. You know what? Spain's never really been anything since. You don't mess around with that Jew. Every nation that ever persecuted the Jew ended up on the wrong side of God and it cost them dearly. You think about uh, World War II Germany. You can't help but think about Hitler who, I mean, let's face it, is an insane and irrational leader. But it is amazing, however, to consider how quickly he motivated and mobilized the nation to take on the task of conquering the world. It's really kind of amazing, isn't it? Now, what was the cause of his and the, national, the nation's collapse? Well, first of all, he lost his mind, and it cost him the war. His generals would come in and say, now listen, we, uh, we suggest retreat at this point. We suggest stepping back a moment and regrouping. And Hitler would say, no, go forward, go forward, go forward, go forward. He lost his mind. So much so that his own generals were plotting his assassination. But I believe there's more to the story. Why did he lose his mind? See, I think one of the main reasons is because Hitler despised the Jew. He blamed them for every ill of the country. He was able to convince a nation that the Jew was the problem. Can you imagine that? He was able to convince the nation that the Jew was the problem. Now you think about that for a minute. He did not even have the internet. He did not have social media. And yet he was able to manipulate an entire nation to hate a particular people. How much more quickly could that happen in our nation today? As a result, we read about the Holocaust. And by the way, the Holocaust actually happened. I'm kind of surprised. There were people trying to do away with that too, you know. But it happened. The Holocaust was a systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jews by the Nazi regime and, of course, its collaborators between 1941 and 1945. It took place across German-occupied Europe. By the end of the war in 1945, the Germans and their collaborators had killed nearly two out of every three European Jews. You think about that. That's just extermination. Listen, you don't mess around with the Jew, though. And the downfall of Germany and its leader had a lot to do, I believe, with the mistreatment of the Jews. You say, well, why would you believe that? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's a mystery when you think about this. I mean, that God is not finished with Israel. After everything that transpired, after the way they treated the prophets, after the way they addressed and dealt with the Son, Jesus Christ, after the way they rebelled and said, let his blood be upon us. Boy, for 2,000 years, they've been paying the price. 
And yet God has never cast them off completely. I don't know about you, but that's a mystery. That they're still around, that they're still here, that they're going to one day again be raised and elevated to the number one nation of all the earth as Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem one day. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. See, when we go up, they begin their process of taking over. And during the times of the Gentiles, which is a little different than the fullness of the Gentiles, we're going to see that they think, once again, that they're going to be able to annihilate and kill every Jew. What Hitler did during World War II will be multiplied many-fold. Millions of Jews will die during the tribulation period as they're hunted down and killed like animals. But, see, God isn't done with them yet, though. And they'll be converted as in a day. And Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom and sit on the throne of David, and the Jew will once again be elevated to their place in the world that they were promised. I don't know about you, that's, that's a mystery. How in the world could that ever happen? It can't happen, except God do it. So God's not finished with the Jew, and you can't explain it, and neither can I, really. Can't do it. But God has big plans for them in the future. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. God is not through with Israel. What a mystery. What a blessing. I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me thankful to know that God is that merciful. Because I know one thing, you and I, especially myself, we don't deserve anything from God, do we? But we are grateful for his wonderful grace and his abundant mercy in our lives. Well, without that, we, we would be done. As we used to say, we'd be toast. I'll tell you something. We knock on a lot of doors. I talked to a man today even, and I said, so you're telling me, he said, so I said, you're telling me you, you, you don't believe the Bible then? And he said, well, no, I don't really. And I said, so you don't believe there's a heaven or a hell? He goes, well, I wish I did believe, but I don't. You know, you know what's sad? It doesn't matter whether he believes. Because the truth is still the truth. And thankfully, you and I will never have to spend one moment in that place called hell or the lake of fire, as it's called in Revelation, because of the same God that's going to restore Israel one day. He's made some promises to us, too. And just like he has kept his promise with Israel, he will keep his promises to us. Isn't that wonderful? We ought to be so grateful for the, the, the salvation that's ours in Christ Jesus. And as we said this week, it should move us. 
It should move us to the point of moving. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you've done for us. We are a needy people. We thank you again for just the opportunity that we have, Lord, to gather tonight and take just a few moments and consider a simple passage in the Bible. Lord, a, a principle uh, and, Lord, a, a promise that, Lord, is, uh, that offers us hope as well. Even as you've been merciful and gracious to the, the Jews and to the nation of Israel and how you will one day restore them despite all the things that has transpired in, in, in their rebellion and disobedience and, and even the fact that they've been scattered throughout the whole earth. And Lord, it would appear that they should have been annihilated and done for. Yet Lord, you supernaturally have interceded on their behalf. And Lord, what a mystery it is to know that the church isn't the end all. Ultimately, you still have work to do with the Jew. And when we're called out, you'll begin to deal with them all over again. I pray, dear God, that you would just bless us and help us, Father, to be grateful for the salvation that's ours. And, Father, to be grateful for a God, you, that makes promises and keeps them. We love you now. We thank you. And we'll give you the glory and the honor. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every